we're moving into the Christmas season, so I'm thinking about Christmas messages and, and things like that. And I'm thinking about rabbit trails, which you guys know I love to go on rabbit trails. You just never know where they're going to go, and I, I kind of excited about that. And so this morning, I, uh, I titled the message, The Logos. So we're going to get back in, in John 1, but I put musings of a cluttered mind. And here's what I mean by that. I just was thinking, as we've been going through John chapter 1, I... When, it, when, I, when I put a sermon together, one of the things I have to do is I have to determine what goes in and what doesn't go in. Uh, I, remember, I remember a year or two ago with my friend Mark, Mark Gary, uh, I had mentioned I have like eight pages of notes, I said, on this, on this thing that didn't make it into the sermon. And he said, well, can I have those eight pages of notes? I'd like to look at them. And, and I was thinking, you know, as I've been doing John 1, Things, notes are getting pushed to the side that didn't make it into the sermon. Although I really like them, I really, I really want them, but maybe they were, uh, they didn't quite fit where I was going or time constraints. And so what I want to do is we're going to go back into early John chapter one and we're going to look at, uh, verses 12, 13, and 14, mainly verse 14, and we're going to revisit it. I, I honed in on it, um, a few weeks ago, but I just was looking, uh, earlier this week at all the notes I had. And I thought, I don't want to quit on this one. I want to keep honing in on it. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at this because, um, again, Matthew and, and, and Luke, they tell these facts about what happened. But, but what John does is John gets into, really, what does Christmas mean? What does Christmas mean when he starts telling us these things like, he says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, uh, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, or a man's will, uh, but born of God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the word became flesh. And, and that word, the word, the word is literally the logos became flesh. Now, what does this mean for us? We looked at it some, but I just want to go deeper. First of all, I, I, there's just a, we have to make that connection and it's an obvious connection. Jesus is the logos. This is, this is not something that you're going to, oh, I didn't realize that. It's, but this is very powerful. And I talked last time we talked about this about what a, what an incredible statement this is, but, um, it, it gets even deeper. And I, want, and I want to get a little deeper here. If we're to know God, then neither rationalism nor mysticism will suffice. For God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately in a historical human being. Um, I read this quite a while back, and somewhere in my notes is who said this, and I can't remember. I couldn't find who said this, but I have this phrase. This is so important to us because, you know, when we talk to, we say we know people. I used to work with teenagers a long time ago. I worked with some teenagers when Michael Jordan was just incredible. And so I had these teens that just, they dressed, you know, in Michael Jordan stuff and they, and they, um, and they read everything they could read about him. And I was talking to one of them. I said, you, you, man, you're crazy about Michael Jordan. He said, oh, he's the great. I just, I just, I feel like I just know him. I said, really? What's his favorite color? Oh, I don't know. What kind of pie does he like to eat most? I don't know. What is he? If he if he has a certain little name for his wife, that's kind of their little name. Do you know what it is? No. I said, oh, so you, you don't really know him? Well, I kind of know him. I said, yeah, that's the thing. 
You kind of know him, but you don't really know him. Because how would you really know him? You would know him because you would spend time with him and you'd, you would, these things would come up. He would casually mention what his favorite color was. He, he'd have you over for dinner and at dessert. He'd say, this is my favorite pie. And he'd bring out his favorite pie. And then he would, uh, and then he would, he would say to his wife, Hey, boo boo, would you get me? And that's her favorite. That's it. I know. Right. Just so you know, <laughs> Michael and I. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and you would learn these things. Why? Because you spent time and you talked with him and there was communication and you, you, you grew to know him. You can't know a person that well if you haven't talked to him. Because the word, this is what's so important about saying Jesus is the word. He's the Logos. Words are so key in our lives. It's how we get to know people. Jesus is the word of God. It's how we get to know God. And you can know about him. You can know also, you can believe in him. But there's a step further. You have to know him. You have to know him. And that takes Jesus. If you want to know God, it takes Jesus. He's the ultimate revelation of God. And so when we say if we're to know God, then neither rationalism nor mysticism will suffice. For God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately in a historical human being. You know, mysticism is this idea, and it's kind of generally speaking, this idea of of knowing something through feeling. Maybe I've experienced something. It's not necessarily on a rational basis. And then rationalism is the exact opposite. I need these hardcore proofs and reasons to believe in God. And I think there's plenty of reasons to believe in God. But whenever we say, I want a watertight, foolproof argument for God, we've gone too far because God doesn't, doesn't give us a watertight, foolproof argument that we can rationally convince someone. Because if we start saying that, you know, it's, it's that whole thing of, of philosophy 101, and I am so scared right now because we have a philosophy professor here. But you can't prove anything absolutely, and I'm not looking at him. I'm not looking, because if right now he's doing this, I know I'm on a limb. But you can't prove it. What if, I mean, what if, let's get all inception. Let's, let's, let's get like the matrix. What if, it, what if that's what we live in? You can't prove anything. You can't prove that it's not true. We have plenty of reasons to believe, but the Greek word logos is this idea of ultimate truth. Jesus is the logos. He's the logic of God. What does that mean? And I think it's very interesting because God doesn't give us a watertight argument. What he does is he gives us a person. He gives us a person. This is the compelling truth of the Word of God. And so we have to look at that person. We have to get to know that person as best we can. The accounts of his life, his teaching, his behavior, his resurrection. We have to use our mind to think. It's not like we're becoming irrational. And I will say, if you're willing to do that with an open mind, you you will begin to see he's a watertight person. Because he's perfect. He's inexplicable. There's no explaining away what he said and what he did. We have to think about it. We have to study. We have to read. And this is the compelling truth. that People can argue for and against God, and theologians and apologists can grapple with, with proofs. And, they, and that's important. I don't want to minimize that. But here's the key. No argument ever changed the human heart. No argument ever changed. Only Jesus has done it. Only Jesus has changed the human heart. And what happens is when Jesus changes, when a person says they yield their life to Jesus and they're willing to follow him, he changes them. He changes them in a way that cannot be explained because it works from the inside out. It works from the inside out. I was uh, doing a little reading 
uh, a week or so ago, and I was, and I was looking at a, it's a phenomenon, it's, it's not real big, they make it sound big, but it's not real big, of churches that are atheist churches. In other words, they want the singing, they want the fellowship, they want all the good stuff that comes with church, but they just don't want God to be involved in it. And, and what's happening, they don't like to talk about this, is they're struggling. Because at first it sounds real exciting and everybody gets together and sings and maybe you make some friends. But after a while, they're like, this is no different than if I did this at a bar. This is no different than if, if I did this over here, over here. This is, it's not that special. And it's not that special because they left the most important part out. And I don't want to mock. I, I need to be careful about it. I don't want to mock, but they left the most important part out. The God that changes lives from the inside out. That's why we're here. Fellowship is nice. New friends is nice. Doing things for each other. Giving blood. Giving uh, presents to kids. That's all good stuff. But if you remove God from the equation, all of that stuff becomes, becomes, it just becomes worthless. You can't change a person's life. You can make them thankful. You can make them happy for a while, maybe sense of feeling like I did something good. And those aren't wrong, but those aren't life-changing. They're not life-changing. And God is in the business of changing lives. I remember one of my favorite quotes from Lord of the Rings, and I have to get Lord of the Rings in there every once in a while just to keep everyone here educated and at a certain level. And one time, uh, Gandalf is talking to Frodo, and he says, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no, no, no knowing where you might be swept off to. And I thought about this, this idea of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can change my heart. Only Jesus can change your heart. And if you allow him, there is no telling where you may go. And this is an awesome thing and a scary thing at the very same time. Um, I am uh, I am a lot of times very curious, and I like to do things. I, sometimes I just get curious about weird things. One time, my oldest son, he was very small, and I was heading out uh, out Smithfield and, and then further on, um, looking at a place where I was going to speak to some people and, and, and do a seminar, and I wanted to see it first and kind of get a feel for it. And so I took my son with me, and so we were driving back, and and... And I had noticed before there was this dirt road and the trees were real tra- tall on either side and it just went out, looked like it went a long ways. And I slowed down. I said, Derek, you see that dirt road? And he was like looking up from his, yeah. And I said, I wonder what's down that road. And he's like, I don't know, you know. I said, well, let's go. And then, you know, he's our oldest. So he's kind of the, and he's like, are we allowed? Are we allowed to go? I said, well, I don't see any keep out signs. Let's go down the dirt road. Dad? <laughs> it's just a little weird. And so I said, let's go. And so we started driving down this road. And you come there, would be a house. It was just a road. That's all it really was. But it was kind of cool. We had a big field with cows. And we stopped. And we got out and looked at the cows. And we yelled moo at them and everything. And then we got, got back in. I, t- I told my son, if you yell moo, they'll come. Because that's what cows say when they want to talk to each other. And so I just had the fun of watching him scream moo at the top of his lungs. <laughs> And so then we drove a little further, you know, and there were some cool houses. Then we drove a little ways, and there was a a house that was obviously abandoned. Part of the roof was caved in. I said, Derek, look at that house. 
He's like, yeah, it's going to fall down. And I said, yeah, let's go up and look at it. And he's like, dad, I, are we allowed? <laughs> I'm like, dude, this is not the right question to ask. And so we, we got out of the car and we walked up this old house, you know, and got on the porch and kind of looked in the window. And, and I was just hoping there'd be furniture still or something, but it was pretty much empty. And we, I said, what do you think? What kind of people live there? And he would say, I don't know, maybe farmers. Maybe they had those cows that we know. Maybe those cows, we used to be theirs. And we talked for a little bit, you know, and then we got back in the car and went a little further and I'd kind of seen another crossroad and we, we went on our way. And he looked at me as we were driving away and he said, Dad, that was an adventure. You never know with Jesus. If you become a follower of Jesus Christ, he may take you on an adventure. And that can be scary because you have your life. And you may say, my life's not that great, but it's comfortable. And Jesus calls you to more. You have a family, and it may be secure, and it may be stable. But what if God calls you to do something totally out of the ordinary? What's going to happen then? That's scary. You're in school, and you have ideas of where you're going and what you're going to do. And Jesus can throw a monkey wrench in the works in your life. I had a life, and I thought I knew what I was going to do, and I had plans for what I was going to do, and Jesus wrecked it in a good way. But he wrecked it. I would never believe I'd be doing something like this. It was the furthest thing from my mind. And Jesus makes no promises for you to, for comfort, or, or, or he just tells you, follow me. But he says, in following me, you do things that matter for eternity. There is nothing better to do with your life. And it doesn't mean, you know, this is not me as a pastor making this call. Come on, everybody, let's go in the ministry together. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about wherever you go, whatever you do, following Jesus Christ as much as you can in your life. Whether, you, whether you're in school, whether you work in the shipyard, whether you, you work at a grocery store, whether you, it doesn't matter. But he calls us to be followers who are ready for anything. Because he may call you to do something that is extraordinary, out of the ordinary. And he will tell you, this is going to be an adventure, but it's not necessarily going to be easy. And so, as followers of Christ, I want to stress, we aren't irrational people. We use our mind. But my question is, have you... Have you taken that step with him? Are you really ready to take this seriously? Or are you saying, well, I believe in God, but I haven't really, this kind of stuff is really, you need to deal with it. You need to grapple with it. Because I, I believe this is true. There is a difference between believing in God and believing God. Because if you believe God, he says, come, follow me. And they dropped their nets and they followed. Jesus, to some fishermen 2,000 years ago, wrecked their life in a good way. But their life changed totally. And I'm not, you know, again, I'm not telling you to quit your job right this minute because we're not irrational. But God is saying, wherever you are, whatever you're doing right now, follow me closely. And so, if I want to know God, if you want to know God, if I want to know Him better, personally, 
Scripture tells us Jesus is the Word. He is the Word. And we know Him through His Word. And we have to know the Word. We have to study the Word. Second thing I want you to see, Jesus is the Logos, and the Logos became human. The Logos became a human being. Now, we did talk about this before, but I just want to explore it a little bit more. What does this mean? It's like the Word was made soft. The Word... the. The Word, the divine, became human. And more than that, the Word became vulnerable. The Word became killable. And that means a couple things. God has become vulnerable, therefore Christmas is incredible when we start to think about it. I mean, if you really start to think about it, this is the only, re- the only religion that has the divine creator becoming a human. He, can't, he came down to us, to the darkness of this world. Quite a few years ago, um, I was at a store, and uh, a grocery store, and it was a fairly big one. And off in the corner, I, I heard voices, like heated voices, loud voices. Um, and, and I just remember because it was they were angry, and, and it was a man and a woman. And so I just kept for for a minute. I just kept shopping. And they were starting to scream. And I just thought, man, somebody needs to do something. And then it kind of occurred to me, maybe you, right? And so I started going over. I started walking over to the corner. And I could see from pretty far away, they were in each other's faces. And she was starting to push him, and he was pushing back. And there was five or six people gathered around. And and uh, and so I started coming over going, why... Why, why is anybody doing anything? And then I thought, well, okay, Bob, are you going to do something? Are you going to walk into this? And, and, and you know how it is. All these things go through your mind. You, you want to believe. All of us want to believe that in a difficult situation, we would be honorable and act in the best way that would just everyone would think we're a hero. But when you get in one of those difficult situations, you know, you start thinking, ah, I don't really know what this is about. Maybe I shouldn't get involved. I mean, maybe it's, maybe that's, you know, whatever. Maybe one of them has a knife or a gun. Maybe one of them has, you know, like a big piece of chicken they'd hit me with. And, and, you know, then you start inventing things, you know, maybe they have a donut that they'll crush in my face or something. And, and you start, you don't want to get involved. And so you, you tend to kind of hope it's n- nothing bad's going to happen. But you don't want to get involved so much of the time. And you hear things sometimes and you find out maybe your best self is not as good as you thought it was. And I'm, I'm going to leave it there because I'm not going to tell you what I actually did. <laughs> but Christmas is this. God heard our cries. He heard it. And he came down. He made himself vulnerable. He walked into it. He didn't just come down at the risk of his life. He came down knowing that it would cost his life. And the word became vulnerable and the word became killable because he heard our cries. You know, in the book of Exodus, it talks about God speaking to Moses and God assures Moses, those are my people. I've heard their cries and I am now going to act. I heard their cries. I'm now going to act. And Christmas means the ultimate act of God, hearing the cries of people. For this reason, Hebrews 2, 
For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers and his sisters in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He had to become just like us. He had to do it. And the implications of this, that he's like us in every way, means that he understands us. He's been where you've been. He knows your pain. Um, I had to go see a, a doctor and a specialist this summer about some stuff. And the, the cool thing was, if there's a cool thing with these kind of things, was um, I, was, I was really struggling and I called and I said, I called the doctor's office and said, can you see me today? Can you see me today? And they, they made room, you know, and, um, and because I wasn't a regularly scheduled, they said, you wait in the parking lot. We'll come to you. You know, so a, a nurse came out and checked my temperature and we went through the questionnaire. Then the doctor came out all dressed up in the PPE gear, my doctor, and he came out and, and he was talking to me and he goes, all right, you can come in. I know exactly what's wrong. And I was like, thank you. He goes, I've had it. And it's, it's painful. I understand it's painful and I know you need help right now. So come on in. And I was like, he understands me. This is so great. It's so great when a doctor, you know, reading an article not too long ago about a doctor who, who had gotten very sick and he wrote a book about being on the bed instead of being the doctor, being the patient instead of being the doctor. And he wrote about it and about how much he learned from it, what it was to be on the bed. And so we have, we have a savior, a high priest. We have a God who knows how it feels. You ever go to the, you ever go to see a doctor and think, I don't know if he really understands how I feel. I don't know if he really gets what this is like. We have a God who knows how it's, how it feels. And I'm not knocking doctors. I mean, teachers need to remember what it's like to be a student. Pastors need to remember what it's like to sit down out there. Um, Parents need to remember what it was like to be a dumb kid, right? We need to remember these things that helps us. And what is Christmas? We have a God who knows what it's like to be a human being and suffer and struggle and laugh and find joy and see good things and see bad things and experience those things. So what is Christmas? Christmas is saying what no other religion wants to say, no other religion that dares to say. The God of the universe came down and got on the bed. The doctor became a patient. The God of the universe came down and he experienced hunger and loneliness, homelessness, grief, rejection, betrayal, torture, injustice. He experienced it all. And what does that mean? It means this. Have you been betrayed? He has to. He knows how it feels. Are you struggling? Are you broke? Are you struggling? He knows how that feels. Are you lonely? So is he. Are you facing death? So did he. And that's why we can go to him. We can go to him because he was made like his brothers and his sisters in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. So we have a God, Jesus, 
who knows how it feels. And because of that, he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Um, you know, sometimes even, even after they've grown, you know, your kids, you, you, you worry about them, you, you stress, you, 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 you want to jump in in every situation and try to fix it like you could when they were little and, and, and just can't. And sometimes, you know, they can be, it can be incredible and sometimes it can be, they can be, it can be incredibly disappointing. And I remember sitting and talking with Bev one time and I said, Bev, you know what this reminds me of? A specific instance, I said, and she said, what? I said, it reminds me of something I did to my parents when, after we had first got married. She said, what? I said, I disappointed, I did something that I just disappointed my mom and dad so badly. So let's remember that. Let's remember that as we deal with our kids because they're young and they make mistakes like all young people do. And uh, let's be graceful and merciful and loving in that. And for parents with small children, just remember what it was like when you, when you were a little kid. Your whole world revolved around you. You did dumb things. And for doctors, remembering what it was like to be a patient. And for teachers, remember what it was like when you were a student. You got so tired of some of the things your, your teacher said to you. We need to remember those things. Because we have a high priest who remembers. Think about that. You pray sometimes about something as difficult as going on in your life. And Jesus, and I, I, you know, I don't know how all this works out, but it's got to be something like this, right? Because I've thought of it. Um, Jesus is there with God. And the prayer somehow is heard. And Jesus says, Father, I know, I remember that. I remember how that felt. I remember that pain in my life. So, as you deal with Bob, be merciful. Be merciful. Because I remember how much that hurt. Where you hurt, Jesus remembers it. He feels it. He knows it. And so, He knows how we feel. You know, I had someone say this to me one time. They say, you don't understand. I, I've gone to Him so many times. I've prayed and prayed and I've poured out my heart. And it felt like he didn't listen. It felt like he didn't answer. And I said to him, Jesus knows that feeling. Jesus knows that feeling too. And the incredible meaning of, of Christmas is that he will know what it feels like to be us. That's what makes Christmas so incredible. God, God knows what it's like to be abandoned by God. God knows what it's like to have a life and death prayer turned down. A no. He knows that feeling. And Christmas means that if you're in trouble and you're struggling and you feel like God isn't listening and answering your prayers, He's been there, He's done that, He knows how it feels. He knows the pain. He knows pain that we've never felt. The infinite agony of, of the sins of the world and being abandoned by His Father. Christmas is the Word made flesh. The third thing, Jesus lived with us and we saw His glory. You know, um, John could have picked a number of different Greek words to get the, uh, the idea of to reside with us. Um, he picked uh, skeno, and that's the word to tabernacle, the word to reside, and, and it literally has ties to the Old Testament tabernacle. And so what he wanted to do is bring a picture to his readers, the tabernacle, oh, the tabernacle, that's right. That's when the glory of God shone. That's when we, you know, all, yes, he said, Jesus now is tabernacling with you. 
The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And, and we beheld His glory. We talked a little bit about Moses. I want to just talk a bit more. When Moses said, I want to see you, God. I want to know you. I really want to know you. Intimacy. Let me see your glory. Let me see your face. And of course, we talk, God said, no, you wouldn't survive that experience. But here's what you do. You build this tabernacle, this tent. I'll dwell. I'll dwell in a back room where no one can come in. Because the glory, is, it has to be under wraps or it could kill someone. For your sake. I'm doing this for your sake. And now, with Jesus, we st- he's the tabernacle. He's the glory. And what does that mean? If, first of all, it means this. It's the end of religion as we know it. It's a, it's a whole nother thing. Religion is always about what can I do? How hard can I work to be acceptable, to please God? And it's all about work and what I do. And suddenly it's been flipped on its head. It's like Jesus is saying, let's get that out of the way first thing. Nothing you can do is going to earn favor. So don't try. He said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to pour into you my glory. I'm going to give you my salvation. And so it, it flips it on its head. It's the, it's the opposite of religion. So Christmas is about the end of religion. We don't have a religion, strictly speaking. We have a person, the Word, the Logos, and we beheld His glory. So why could Moses not see his glory? Let me try to explain. You know, when something when somebody wrongs you, not not just a slight, but a deep hurt, an evil, something that could really change you, that could could affect you terribly. That wrong creates a gap between you and that person. There, there's a debt, and if that person comes up, say they've really wronged you, it's been very hurtful. They say, you know what? I'm sorry. Okay, it's nice that they say they're sorry, but it feels kind of hollow, really. When you think about the magnitude of the pain, it's like, naturally, we want to kind of say, yeah, you're sorry. Well, let me just make sure you're being sorry for what has happened to me. Let me, you ever feel that? Let me explain to you how bad you've hurt me. Let's get a little detail here. I've got a list, right? That's what we feel like we want to do because there's a gap, there's a debt. And just saying, I'm sorry, it's just like when people say, oh, just forgive and forget. That's such a load right there because that, that in pract- practically speaking, you know that doesn't work. If somebody really hurts you and you say you forgive them, you still remember it, don't you? Or am I the only weirdo in this room? I still remember it. I see, it still comes back in living color. Why? Because there's this great debt. And just saying, forgive me, I forgive you, doesn't cancel the debt. It's still there. It still has to be worked through and paid through. Why is it this way? Because we're made in the image of God. And that's how we experience injustice and evil. It can't be shrugged off. It can't be said, oh, it's okay. That can't happen. Something has to be done. And the gap we experience, the debt that's incurred is nothing, nothing compared to the gap and the debt between us and God because of what we have done to Him, what we've done to His creation, what we've done to His His children, to each other. There's this gap, and God says something has to be done to close the gap. There has to be an atonement. That old word, atonement, at-one-ment, the bringing back together and making it one. And you can't treat the gap as if it's nothing. 
And the tabernacle points to this. And the tabernacle, they had sacrifices and there were priests. And the tabernacle was this place where this was done to cover sin, to start to deal, to at least cover the gap, to cover it temporarily. Because it looked towards the day when, we just talked about this last week, when John the Baptist would look and say, there's the Lamb of God. Look, look. Not just like, oh, yeah, okay. Five foot, you know, ten. No, no, no. Look deeper. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the Old Testament, those tabernacles, and the tabernacles, they were doing those sacrifices. They all pointed to that. They all looked to the day when the ultimate sacrifice would come. And so this is an incredibly, when when it says we beheld his glory, this is an incredibly loaded phrase. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus came to earth vulnerable, to become killable. Why? So he could pay the price and close the gap. So at Christmas, the glory of God becomes a baby. Someone had to change the God of the universe's diaper. You think about how God humbled himself. He became a baby. The Old Testament glory of God was awesome and powerful and incomprehensible. And the the majesty and the holiness of God has become an infant, a baby. A baby that's accessible and safe and embraceable. God is huggable. I love when we see lean back into the arms of a loving father. Why? Because it's possible now. Through Jesus, God has become huggable. So Jesus died on the cross. He paid the debt. He closed the gap. Now, just like God stepped into history through Jesus Christ, He does that now in people's lives. He steps into people's lives. The glory of God comes into your life and can be, we can be transformed. That's what Christmas is about. That's what Christmas is about. The Word of God became flesh. He tabernacled among us, among us so that we can see the glory that Moses was not able to see. And so just real practical. We look at Scripture. We learn what it's saying. It gives us insight. Now, what do we do with this? So what? You know, Bob, cool. God became a baby. So what? Well, here's so what. Number one, we have to go all in. There are no half measures with following Jesus Christ. It's too huge. I, I shared a while back as a kid growing up, we, we would play penny ante poker. And, and the first time when I was at least cognizant enough of how the cards worked and, and that I, I thought I had a winning hand and I decided to go all in and I pushed this little pile of pennies and nickels into the middle and said, I'm going all in. You know, and obviously I was, I think I was like seven or eight at the time and it was so obvious that I had a really good hand that it, my brothers all folded, my dad folded, you know, and I was like, oh, and my mom said, I'll call that just because she loved me. <laughs> she knew she was going to lose. She didn't even have a pair. I had like a full house. She didn't even have a pair, but she said, oh, I don't want to break my baby's heart. So she pushed some money in, you know, and she lost every bit of 27 cents, I think. And just the, at that moment of going all in, it was, it was exciting and scary all at the same time. You know, it was just like, oh, this is it. I'm either in the game or out of the game, that kind of a thing. And, and I had somebody come up to me and said, do you sure you should use gambling analogies from the pulpit? Well, Paul uses gambling a- analogies and horse ra- and, and boxing analogies, so I think I'm in safe company. So there, okay, I just want to say that. 
So he's the word who is God. He's not another prophet. He's not another sage. He is the God whom all the prophets and sages point to. And so you got to see, it starts to force your hand. If a man claims to be God, claims to be the ultimate judge of the universe, then either he's a fool, he's incredibly wicked, and you should just run from him, or he's what he claims he is. If you decide he's what he claims he is, there's nothing else you can do but throw, just go all in, throw everything at his feet and say, I will follow you with everything I have. But halfway is not an option. Fence straddling is death. It just doesn't work. You can't go halfway. You can't just like a person who talks like Jesus talked. It's all or nothing. It involves, you know, at first, seeing you're a sinner. You need a Savior. And yielding to Jesus Christ as your Savior based on what He did on the cross. That's where it starts. But for then, for people who have taken that step, for, for, for many of us here, probably most of us here at least, would say, oh, I'm a Christian, Bob. I've, I've, I've taken that first step. Well, then there's this constant humbling and yielding to Him. A sense of weeding out the things in our lives that get in the way, that ruin our relationship, that slow us down, that hinder us. Why? Not, not so that I can just, I can be a better servant or I can serve God more and I do more things. No, so that I can be closer to Jesus. That's what's important. So that I can know Him better. The serving, the good deeds, that all just flows out of it. That's, that just comes. The big thing is, if I know Jesus, you know, the other day I was thinking, oh, God, I, I, I want to serve you better. I want to serve you better. And it hit me. I'm studying this. Yeah, I'm, I'm slow on the uptake sometimes. It's like, Bob, read your notes. Um, it hit me. It hit me. It's, if I want to serve him better, I need to just know him better. Love him more. Let him love me more. Understand what he's done for me. Think about it. Work through it. The other stuff flows from that. You can't stop it from flowing as you begin to yield to Him. So, practical conclusions. We have to go all in. Second practical conclusion is, and I've already discussed this some, He knows how we feel. That's so incredible. He felt the same thing. He can sympathize with your struggles because He had the same struggles. He is eager to shower His grace on people. He's full. The Word of God says He's full of grace and truth. Now, that's truth not used as a weapon, right? We all got to be careful about that. I mean, how many times have we heard somebody say something terrible to another person and go, it's just the truth? Yeah, but that's truth as a weapon. That's not truth because you love the truth. That's truth as a weapon. That's truth that harms. It says Jesus is full of grace and truth. What is that? Truth that is spoken, spoken gracefully. Words, Paul tells us, words that that help in the moment, words that build in the moment. And so he's full of that. He's worthy of our trust, and he's full of that because he knows how it is. He knows how it feels to be like us. Final thing, the impossible becomes possible. What do I mean by that? I was thinking a while ago, because it recurred in my mind again about talking about Don Quixote, but that, that line, to simply see the world as it is and to not think there's something more, something better, is to be insane. What is that? It's the idea. This is what we're told, right? We live in the real world. Here's the real world. This is where we live. And then there's the ideal. This is, this is where things are perfect, you know? And, and you hear that all the time. P- 
people will say, right? In a perfect world, in an ideal world, there would be no war. In a perfect world, there would be, you know, adults wouldn't harm children. In a perfect world, people wouldn't take advantage of other people financially. People wouldn't cheat people. People wouldn't, whatever it is. In a perfect world. Well, what is this? This perfect world. This is where God is. And there's this huge, you know, call it what is it is, this huge piece of concrete between the real world where we live and the perfect world. And we can't get up to it. We admit it all. I mean, we see it all the time. It's, it's pretty obvious. But God broke through. And, and in, in the, the, the play Man of La Mancha, you have a man, Don Quixote, who, who decided to live in the real world. And everyone said, you're insane. You're insane. And he said, those who decide to just live in the real world and not the ideal world, they're insane. That's crazy. And if you believe in Christmas, if you do, then you don't have to choose between the real world and the ideal world because the, the, the ideal world and the real world, because the ideal world broke through into the real world. Jesus came in the flesh. Because Christmas is the Word made flesh. That means the ideal smashed through and became real. And when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, the ideal comes into your life. It doesn't matter how you feel about your life. You may feel your life is worthless. You may feel your life has been a huge waste of time. You may feel that you've done nothing that accomplished anything good in your life. You just hate what you are. And God says, I can change that. In an instant, he comes in your life. And, and, and Don Quixote found this woman who was a nothing, a nobody. She, she admitted it. She told everybody it was true. She yelled it at him and he treated her like royalty. He treated her like a queen. He treated her like she was in the ideal world. And God says, that's, I mean, all the great stories point to the story. Jesus Christ came and he says, I'm going to treat you like you're special. You're not worthless. You're not what you may think you are. You're not what in your deepest heart of hearts you know is true about you. You know, I'm a terrible person. And Jesus says, I'll change that. I will give you my glory. I will change you into my likeness. And so Christmas, man, Anything can happen. That's what it means. The door is wide open for anyone now who would follow God. And Christmas, I was just thinking about that. Christmas means everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And anything is possible when God's in it. Something we've said here for 17 years. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything is possible when God's involved. And Christmas means this more than ever. And I want to encourage you, in the next few weeks, we're going to take this idea and we're going to develop it in the sense of, of we sang, come, let's, let us adore Him. Adoration, worship of God, and how that plays out in the Christmas story and how we can learn from it. I'm, I'm really excited about the next three weeks, the things that we're going to be talking about on one of my extended rabbit trails. But it's Christmas. I mean, that's not a rabbit trail. Christmas is not a rabbit trail. If you think it is, go to your mountain, Grinch. Um, 
So we're going to do that. I encourage you to be thinking as we, as we lead up, as we lead up to that. Thinking about what we've just said, we have to go all in. He knows how we feel. And the impossible becomes possible now through Jesus Christ. That can be scary and exciting at the same time. Jesus is saying, join me on this adventure. You will do things that will change eternity. What else is more important than that? What else is worth my life compared to that? Nothing, nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, what he's done and what he is doing now. And Father, we thank you that you've given us this mission to rescue the perishing. You've heard the cries, and God, you want us to hear the cries also. And uh, Lord, as we follow you, we get to join this grand, grand adventure that you have for your children to impact and change the world. Thank you, Lord, that you use us. And uh, as we leave this place, help us to have new eyes to see people the way you see people and not to, to judge or um, j- just look down on people in any way. We thank you for Jesus and what Christmas means. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us online. Um, I encourage you as we all leave here or wherever we go, even if we're locked in our homes, we find time to do things that will affect people for eternity. I want to mention also in the back in a basket, we have three by five cards and pins for prayer requests. We have people who will pray for you. You don't have to even have to sign your name if you don't want to, but you can just write something, fold it over, lay it in. It will only go to our prayer people and, uh, and it will be kept um, only among people who pray. Uh, not, not with anyone else. We'd encourage you to do that if there's something you would like people to pray for. Thanks for coming. God bless you, and you are dismissed.